The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker, Rev. Eric Landry, pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Temecula, California, and executive editor of Modern Reformation Magazine. The views and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Turning your Bibles to John chapter 1, the very last verse, John 1, 51. I'm going to start there and then read through John chapter 2, verse 11. From John chapter 1, verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I'm preaching through the Gospel of John right now, and this last week we got to John chapter 2, but one of the things I'm trying to encourage my congregation to see is the central place that John 1.51 has, I think, in the rest of the text of the Gospel of John. The promise of Jesus to Nathaniel that you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man is the verse, I think, on which the rest of the narrative of the Gospel of John turns. Now, this promise is more than just a promise of a heavenly afterlife. It's more than just a promise of something like the transfiguration when the disciples would see Jesus' heavenly glory. It's a promise of heavenly life as it's centered on Jesus himself. The heavens opening up at Jesus' baptism. The blessings of the kingdom that are poured out through the different signs that Jesus performs. The life that Jesus lives. The death that Jesus dies. The rest of the gospel, I think, charts out this heavenly life. And so the first half of the book of John, the book of signs is that those seven signs that I think begin to elucidate what it means to have this heavenly life given to, the, uh, given to the disciples. And then the second half of the gospel, of course, is the passion narrative that culminates in the resurrection of Jesus. 
This morning, in just the little bit of time that we have, I want to look with you at the first sign that Jesus does in the presence of his disciples. What I would say is the first example, the first lived out example of the heavenly life that Jesus promises uh, to those who believe in him. This first sign puts the old life under which we have all labored and the new life under which, uh, or which Jesus is introducing to his disciples, puts the old life and the new life in really stark contrast. And I think for those of us, particularly here this morning at Westminster, it gives us not only the message that we preach today or that we will preach when we're called to particular pulpits or lead Bible studies, it also gives us... I'll speak personally, it gives me a personal sense of hope when we witness the dawning of Jesus' hour of glory in our own lives. Now, the old life that Jesus is putting to rest in some ways is represented by those six heavy stone jars. And John helpfully tells us that they are the stone jars that are set aside for the Jewish rites of purification. Specifically, the people who were coming to the wedding feast would purify themselves, go through the rituals of washing, and the utensils that were given or that were being used at the wedding feast would also be washed using these six stone jars. Uh, Commentators tell us that this is probably anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of water that would be available for this wedding feast. That's a lot of water for purification. This is a large feast probably going on for many days. Now, these stone heavy or these heavy stone water jars not only represented the Mosaic law, the old life, but they also fulfilled that law. So the people who were there at the wedding feast didn't just give a hat service to the old life, they were actually actively engaged in living out the old life and all of its laws. But the problem, as Jesus sees, as Mary so helpfully points out to us, is not that the wedding uh, lacked purification. It wasn't that the old life was in some sense uh, not living up to its own claims. The problem at this wedding was wine. The wedding didn't lack the water of the law. It lacked the wine of celebration. Up to this point in the wedding, the servants had drawn water from these jars to perform the ritual cleansing, to fulfill the requirements of the law, but then Jesus speaks and everything changes. It's not just that the miracle has occurred, that the water has been turned into wine. I think too often we get so focused on the actual miracle, the actual sign, that we forget actually what it's signifying, what it's pointing us to. It means that the time for the ceremonial purification is fulfilled. No more is the wedding supposed to be based around the utensils and the purification of the guests. No more because these six stone water jars are now filled to the brim, not with the water for purification, but with the wine, making them unuseful for purification anymore. The jars that had been so closely identified with the requirements of the law are now identified with the lavish, abundant, superior life that Jesus is offering. Those 120 to 180 gallons of ritual water have turned into about 500 bottles of wine. And not the two-buck chuck stuff. This is the good Napa cab stuff. 
The significance of this miracle is very important. The life that had previously been identified as a God-pleasing life, oriented around the law, has been changed. Now, the life that is identified as a full life, as a heavenly life, is oriented around Jesus. And that life is characterized not by careful attention to the requirements of the Mosaic law, but by the presence of wine. That life is now characterized not by the lament of the groom having run out of wine, but it's characterized by joy. That wine, or that, that life, is characterized with the party that Jesus introduces. The announcement of this advent of this new life is paired here in the Gospel of John with the response of the disciples. John tells us in verse 11 that this, the first of his many signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed not because they saw Jesus do a really cool trick, But they believed because they see, even if it's just in a very small way, even if they've just tasted it, they believe because they see the glory of Jesus. And again, I think in verse 51 of chapter 1, this is what Jesus is describing. Heavenly life, a life that is centered around him. This is now what the disciples are being introduced to. The question naturally comes then to you and me. Do we see Jesus in the same way that the disciples see Jesus here? When you think about life with Jesus, when I think about life with Jesus, do we think about eating and drinking? Do we think about a feast? Do we think about a celebration? Or do we think about purification and law-keeping? Do we think about wine? Or do we think about water? I think the answer to that question will tell you a great deal if you are believing in Jesus the way that the the disciples believed in him. Consider the implications of what Jesus did and how that plays itself out in your own life. Jesus created 500 bottles of great wine to share at a party that was almost over. Again, the groom probably at this party was not stupid. He knew that he needed to have enough wine on hand. Otherwise, commentators tell us that he would have been liable to a lawsuit for running out of wine. So even if this party has been going on for several days, the groom has probably thought through how much wine he needs to have in store, and yet he's run out. He didn't run out on the first day. He didn't run out at the beginning of the party. He ran out toward the end of the party. And Jesus creates 500 bottles of wine at the end of this party. That's reckless. That doesn't make sense. That's way beyond the wine budget. The master of the feast is stunned. No one does this, he says. What does it mean? If that wine is representative of Jesus of the new life, the heavenly life that he is introducing in contrast to the old life, then it means that we have now a very great picture of a reckless, profligate God. A God who is a reckless spender of grace. In fact, we could say that he even wastes grace. How much of that wine was really drunk in the last day or day and a half of that that wedding celebration? 
But Jesus isn't out just to give everybody a nice time at the wedding. He's pointing them to a brand new reality that's fixed on him. His heavenly life, a life that culminates in his death and in his resurrection, is those 500 bottles of wine. More than enough. A reckless waste of resources. A spilling of the blood of God. Heaven is opened up and the party begins. But if this is what life with Jesus looks like, why don't I live like it's true? Why is it that I don't join the party? Why is it that I live my heavenly life as if I'm living on a wine budget? Am I afraid that too much wine will lead to dancing, and God knows we can't have any of that. Too much of us live as if John chapter 2 had not actually ever been written, as if Jesus' first miracle had never occurred, as if Jesus' hour still had not come. And for those of us who live that way, truly the wine has run out, and the groom's lament is our own. The sadness and the disappointment, the bitterness that we sometimes feel in our Christian life, and ironically that we extend to others, is a reflection not of our abundance, but of what we lack. We are scraping the bottom of an empty water jar. But because of this tendency in all of us to doubt, to forget, to return to empty water jars, this story also assures us that the new life that Jesus gives ultimately doesn't depend upon us. Jesus' hour didn't come because Mary had the foresight to ask him to intervene in this wedding celebration. His hour comes, as Paul tells us in Galatians, in the fullness of time. His hour comes when Father, Son, and Holy Spirit conspired in eternity past to rescue their creation from their sins. His hour comes at the precise moment that the Father says, now is the moment of salvation. He is now the bridegroom who pours out his life as the wine of the covenant. And the lavish grace that flows from him to you and to me and through you and through me to the other guests at the wedding feast of the Lamb is what sustains us. It's what nourishes us even in our moments of doubt, even in our moments of sadness and bitterness and frustration. We share that wine with, with the others who, like us, have been compelled to come in from the highways and the byways to join the wedding feast of the Lamb, who have nothing to commend ourselves to the groom except our own sin, our own doubt, our own tendency to return to the water of the law. But like the original guests at the wedding there in Cana, we are the beneficiaries of his vintage grace, a wine that not only makes the heart glad, but a wine that gives true peace to the soul. Let us pray. Father, we pray that we would see Jesus as his disciples saw him, that we would not be so taken up 
with the sign that we forget the thing that it signifies. But that having apprehended Jesus and having placed our hope anew in him, we would know, particularly this day and through this week and into the rest of our lives and ministry, the beauty of the grace that you have given through him to us. The marvelous wonder of the new heavenly life that sustains us. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.